Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. The Bible reading tonight comes from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. 1 Peter, chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, It should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thank you, Georgia. Well, I know I'm ageing myself by telling you this, but uh, a lot of you know how old I am anyway, so why pretend? Uh, I went to school back in the days of corporal punishment. Do you remember? Yeah, I know, that's a long time ago, right? And uh, I can tell you that while the cane was painful, it wasn't the worst sort of punishment inflicted in those days. One of the punishments that happened in the classroom, believe it or not, was, uh, was this. You would have to stand up the front of the room, not with a stool but with a chair, and chairs in those days were steel framed with timber seating, so they weren't light. And one would have to stand with it above their head for as long as they could. Now, if you think about that for a teenage adolescent boy, it's not going to last all that long, for one, and I'm getting pretty tired now, so I don't have to do that so I can put it down. Uh, It's not going to last all that long. As a teenage boy, you're very conscious about your own physical development. And as soon as it starts to drop you can probably imagine what the rest of the class does. Fits of laughter. At least the cane wasn't humiliation. That was humiliation. Why tell you that story? Well, have a look at the very first verse of our passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. We know from our own Anglican research, a report that was published in 2021, that the church has sometimes confused something as beautiful as humble submission with something as horrific as being submitted to humiliation. And as we come into this passage tonight on wives and husbands, I want us to be very, very clear of this. Humble submission is not being submitted to humiliation. 
Humble submission is not being submitted to humiliation. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter and last week John taught us from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and he reminded us that humble submission is the big idea that's driving Peter's application of living good lives as foreigners and aliens, exiles, in the world that they lived in so that God might be glorified. Humble submission for the Christian, giving someone else respect and honour happens primarily out of fear for the Lord or out of reverence for the Lord God. And I've got some verses there on the screen if you want to chase that up. Humble submission is the posture for all Christians as we go about living our life. And in today's passage, Peter uses the phrase in the same way, you see it both in verse 1 and verse 7 of chapter 3, to refer back to what he's been talking about in chapter 2 reminding all of us, as he wants to focus particularly on wives and then husbands, but reminding all of us that we're called to this posture of humble submission. Or, as John so eloquently put it for us last week, to choose Christ, not comfort. But choosing is an essential part of the Bible's idea of humble submission. Look again at the passage at 1 Peter 3 verse 1 and 5. Wives, just like the holy women of the past, submit themselves to their husbands. Their submission is voluntary, not enforced. And the choice to submit implies a level of power, at very least the power to choose something else. And if you're in a situation where you don't have the power to choose something else, then I'll put it to you that you're not humbly submitting and quite probably you're being submitted to humiliation. Choice is an important part of humble submission. In the example of Jesus' own humble submission in 1 Peter 2 that John touched on last week, we know that Jesus had power every step of the way to the cross to choose something else. At any point, he could have chosen not to go through with it, but he chose to submit for our sake. He chose to submit so that we could be forgiven, so that our sins could be dealt with. He chose. Choosing is essential to humble submission. Scripture does not call us to be submitted to humiliation nor to submit someone else to humiliation. Rather, what it does is invite us to this posture of humble submission. So then what's 1 Peter 3 verse 1-7 say to wives? I have four things. First of all, Peter is not asking wives to blindly submit. Nor is he asking husbands to make their wives submit. That that would be a gross misreading of this passage. Rather, he's inviting wives to humble submission with a godly purpose. And the godly purpose is the second point. The godly purpose that Paul talks about in verse 1 and 2 is about witnessing to their unbelieving husbands. See, in the culture that Peter was writing to, wives were expected to worship the God of their husband. 
And so to break with that tradition and to wish to worship Jesus would cause all sorts of issues. And so Peter is urging these women who have become followers of Jesus to win their husbands over without words, not to argue with them, but to submit to them through humble submission to their husbands for the sake of the gospel, Peter imagines husbands being won over to Jesus as they see, in his words, the purity and reverence of the lives of their wives. The wife may have chosen to forgo her own Christian freedoms for the sake of her husband's salvation. That's the godly purpose that Paul has in mind when he asks wives, invites wives to submit. And that takes us to the third point for wives. That is this. Uh, Wives that are focused on, again, Peter's words, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit rather than outward adornment. Now, you might be pleased to know that Peter isn't precluding outward adornment here. He's not saying you can't have any outward adornment. He's speaking about their focus, their posture, their attitude. And Peter says that such an attitude that focuses on that inner beauty instead is actually an attitude that is worth to God, of great worth in God's sight. Now, when it comes to a gentle and quiet spirit, we may think that that's a particularly feminine posture. Sometimes that's how it's perceived in the world that we live in. But think about how Jesus described himself. He described himself as being gentle and humble in heart. This is not just a feminine posture. It's not just a posture for wives. It's a posture that Peter is encouraging wives to have in this context. But it's actually a posture for all of us a posture that shows our likeness to Jesus. Fourth point, Peter urges wives, as with holy women of the past, to put their hope in God and then live in humble submission to their husband. God first, put your hope in him, and then he's inviting them to submission to their humble submission to their husband. And perhaps this is the key transcultural idea in this whole story. Yesterday I was officiating at a wedding and some of you were at that wedding and you would expect that the bride on that day, now the wife, would have great hope that her husband would love her as he promised in those vows. And that's a good and great hope. And at the same time, we recognise that husbands sometimes let their wives down. I know I'm not able to love my wife the way that I would like to all the time. And so Peter says to wives, put your hope in God who will never let you down. And that's not to undermine a sense of hope in the husband, but to reinforce it with a greater hope. Put your hope in God who will never let you down. And look to him at all times, just as the holy women in the past have done. Well, it says four things that 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7 says to wives. What about four things for husbands? Just to kind of keep it fair, right? Here we go. Four things for husbands. First, in the same way, 
Peter says. And again, he's linking this back to that sense of humble submission. While wives are specifically asked to submit for the sake of their unbelieving husbands, the whole context is about all of us submitting to each other. The responsibility as husbands is not to determine or uh, enforce humble submission of wives, but to make sure that we are humbly submitting, we husbands are humbly submitting to God. Second, husbands are to be considerate. Now, this might just sound like common sense to us, or I hope they're going to be considerate, but in the patriarchal world that Peter was writing in, this would have been mind-blowing, revolutionary, and in some places in our world it may be still quite revolutionary. What Peter is saying is rather than being impatient, short-tempered, controlling, belittling, or ignoring our wives' thoughts and feelings, husbands are to be considerate. Now, again, in that culture, it would be normal to treat your wife in a belittling way because wives were seen as lower on the social scale. And so what Peter is saying is revolutionary. Consider your wives. Be thoughtful of how God has made them to be of their ideas and passions in all of life. And this goes on to Peter's third point where he says, husbands are to honour, that's what the word respect means in verse 7, to honour their wife as the weaker partner. I know I'm on dangerous ground here with weaker partner, but try and hang on there with me just for a moment and I think we can get a way through this that's helpful. I think Peter's alluding to two things when he refers to the wife as the weaker partner. First, I think it's a generalised reflection on physical strength. Let me explain it this way. Some of you know I have two grandsons and I'm watching my oldest grandson begin to understand his strength, particularly in relation to his younger brother, his younger, weaker brother. And my eldest grandson is starting to work out that he can either use his strength to honour himself and get his own way or he can use his strength to honour his weaker brother. He can use his physical strength to help his weaker brother do things that he might not be able to do. I think this is the point, that those who have power or strength are to consider how they use it to honour someone else and not just bring honour to themselves. And then the second thing I think Peter is alluding to is again that idea of social entitlement of the wife in the uh, culture that he was writing. The gospel overturned that idea that women were somehow inferior to men and brought them up with incredible equality, as you can see in verse 7. Peter says, The wife is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. And so honour her. Bring her up. Treat her better than what society will treat her. Give her the honour that society won't give to her. Remember her status in the gospel and her status before God. And then the fourth thing for husbands, and I think this is the big one for us, is husbands are to remember 
that treatment of their wives is deeply Christian. Look at what Peter says. He asks them to honour their wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, as I've been reflecting on this, my natural instinct is to go, how's that work? How's it actually work that prayers are hindered in this situation? And you can read some stuff on that and think about that more, but I think that question actually takes us away from the point that Peter's making. And the point that Peter is making is quite simply this, that I can't claim, a husband cannot claim to honour God if I'm not honouring my wife. There is something deeply Christian about honouring our wives. And perhaps for me and for all the husbands in this room, whether you've been married for 50 years or whether you've been married for 50 days, that's what we need to reflect on. That honouring our wives in some way shows the beauty of the gospel and is deeply Christian and that's what we need to be focused on. Well, I know that for many of you, uh, many of you here tonight aren't married and so this sermon might seem a little bit irrelevant but perhaps one day you would like to marry. Perhaps not, that's okay. But I want you to think about these things. And even if you don't ever plan or think that you'll get married, then think about these things in relational context that you're in with all sorts of people. And I know for many who are married, you are seeking to live in humble submission to God and to each other in your marriages and I thank you for that. But I'm also aware that marriages go through all sorts of seasons, some of which are tough and some of which... Uh, and some of those tough places become places where unhelpful and sinful patterns evolve and come to light. I want us as a church to be proactively working at healthy relationships generally and healthy marriages for those who are married and guarding against some of the ways that abuse can start to slip into relationships. And so to that end, I've invited Linda Dunstan, Anglicare's Family and Domestic Violence Advisor, to help us think more about that, uh, about that area. So, Linda, would you please come and join us? Thank you. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Linda's been with us all day today and that's a big Sunday for you uh, and she might be getting a bit tired so uh, I think she'll stay around for a little bit after the service but we might let her go after not too long as well. But thank you so much for being here. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you do. Okay, thanks Ron. Thanks very much for inviting me to be here for the whole day. Um, yeah, so um, I work for Anglicare. I've worked for Anglicare for about 15 years and I am the only family domestic violence advisor, <laughs> but part of my role is training and equipping our staff across the organisation, um, many of whom do work with clients who are impacted by family and domestic violence. So I run staff training. Um, I help our organisation think about our organisational response as well. So we're a large organisation employing about 
5,000 people, 80% are women, so it's pretty likely that we're going to see um, staff members also impacted by domestic violence, so we want to have good policies and, and ways of responding to them and supporting them. Um, and I, I do also have a diocesan facing role, which is to support churches in their response, so that is actually being a contact person for uh, people in ministry who are responding to situations of domestic abuse in their church, uh, and also being involved in developing some resources and things to equip churches. Um, I live pretty locally, just down the road in Beecroft. Um, I'm married and I have two adult kids, one grandbaby, one puppy. Wonderful. Now, before we get into the area of domestic abuse, um, can you just tell us what are some signs of healthy relationships that you see in your work and just that we know of generally? Yeah, so I'm sure you probably all see people with good healthy relationships around you and hopefully that's your own experience as well, but we know that's not always the case. I think healthy relationships are really built on respect and trust, understanding our differences, a willingness to work together, cooperate and compromise for the good of each other, um, an attitude of serving each other, not demanding that your own needs be met, but where it is actually okay to express your own needs, your own opinions, your own um, you know, passions, everything about yourself, that it's actually okay to express that as well. Um, yeah, and that you really, as a couple, are working together for each other's flourishing and really that idea of being co-heirs of grace. Yeah, great. A real safe and flourishing environment. And uh, you actually have a slide that the guys might put up now there which uh, just has some of those uh, signs of respectful relationships. And if anyone wants these slides, you can just ask for them later and we'll give you a copy of them. Okay, well, let's think then about uh, domestic abuse or family and domestic violence. How would you define that and is there a difference in those terms? Sure. So the terminology, first of all, um, pretty interchangeable to talk about domestic abuse or domestic violence, domestic and family violence. Sometimes we're thinking more about other types of abuse in family relationships when we include that. But usually with domestic abuse or domestic violence, we're thinking about um, abuse that happens between intimate partners. So either those who currently are or have been in an intimate partner relationship. Um, so again, abuse, you know, you can experience abuse when somebody, you know, maybe verbally abuses you or denigrates you, puts you down, something like that. And that might be a one-off sort of incident. It is abusive and it's not okay, but that's not really what we're looking at when we're talking about domestic violence or domestic abuse. We're really looking at a pattern, an ongoing pattern of behaviours based on exerting power and control of one person over the other in the relationship and it usually causes fear and intimidation. Um, it's also important to know that it's not just physical violence. So it may include physical violence, but not always. Um, and there's a whole range of other types of behaviour. Yeah, so maybe just talk us through this. some on the screen there for yeah. those who can see that. What are some of those other examples of domestic violence? Yeah, so a lot of the other types of um, abusive behaviours would be things like verbal and emotional abuse, so denigration and put-downs, um, denigrating who you are and uh, undermining that. Social control and isolation, so cutting you off from friends and family and your social network, uh, financial control, so uh, micromanaging every cent that you spend, maybe running up debts in your name without your consent. Um, interestingly, 
women in particular who experience domestic abuse, about 90% will experience financial control, so it's a really prevalent issue. Um, jealousy, monitoring, stalking, technology facilitated abuse, so that's a really common one now that's happening. Um, it can also include image-based abuse, so um, posting images of somebody, intimate images without their consent. Uh, spiritual or cultural abuse, so cutting people off from their religious or cultural expression or using things like the Bible to try to control and denigrate you. Um, manipulating children and threats to harm the person or their family members or even their pets. So that's some of the types of behaviour. Yeah, there's a see. whole scope of, yeah. of um, yeah. behaviours there. Alright, I want to touch on the area of coercive control, which is a a newer sort of area perhaps for some to think of, one that's been in the media. Uh, actually, coercive control became a crime in New South Wales last year. Um, but before, we, before I ask you another question about that, we've got a video to just watch quickly. So what are you doing tomorrow? He's been in such a good mood all day, I really don't want to set him off now. I need to study, but he hates it when they talk about my school friends, so should I just say that I'm hanging out with one of the girls, or is he going to try and talk me out of it? I'm just studying for my exam. Whereabouts? If I tell him at the Prius house of the whole group, he's going to get super weird, but if I say I'm going to go to the library, he's probably going to drop by and visit. Uh, a few of us are going to go to Prius house. Is that guy Max going to be there? I don't know why he's so jealous of him. Max has a girlfriend and I'm not interested, but he hates it when I'm around other guys. So should I just be honest? Yeah, but I told you, okay, there's nothing going on with Max. He's just a friend. Okay. Well, I'll pick you up tomorrow for dinner at six, but don't be late. Okay. You know I hate us being late. Well, I can text him for his address if you need it. Don't worry, I've got to find my friends. I'll find it. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll see you then. I love you. I love you too. Just let that sink in. Um, Linda, uh, coercive control can happen either to either gender. Can you just give us some stats, if you know them, I'm asking you off the top of your head, on what we see, or maybe even just more generally what we see in family and domestic violence? Um, yeah, actually, coercive control is very gendered. Yeah, so right. uh, the stats would be um, 90% perpetrated by men against yeah. women. Yeah. Um, so while we know that some other types of just abuse or emotional or verbal abuse can be kind of pretty gender symmetrical, when we see this pattern of really power and control or coercion and control, it is sadly a very gendered phenomenon that is primarily perpetrated by men against women. Yeah, not 90%, so 9 to 1 would be the ratio, yeah. That's very significant. Well, let's think about coercive control. Um, can you just explain it a bit more? And why might we be blind to it? What why might it be hard to spot sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I think the video is a good example um, of somebody who the whole relationship is about meeting his needs. 
Uh, and you can kind of see that the girlfriend is like doing this walking on eggshells thing, like checking all the time. What will I say? How will he react? So needing to manage his behaviour at all times mm. and where he's like very clear on what his demands are. He's very suspicious of her. So there's this pattern of jealousy that if she's talking to another guy or she's even, you know, in the library with another guy, we might see that, you know, if someone, a woman, if she's working with a man, then the partner will make accusations that she is having an affair with somebody in that context. So that real extreme jealousy. Um, and it's also often... Um, behaviour that you've probably heard about called gaslighting, which is really about trying to undermine the victim's sense of reality and, and what they're experiencing. So it might be things like telling you one thing that they want and then when you do that for them, they like, why not if you're doing that? I didn't tell you to do that at all. Like really trying to make you doubt your sense of self and your view of reality. So it's very manipulative behaviour. Um, it's very dangerous. It's actually quite strongly correlated with um, domestic homicide. Um, and it's often very subtle and, and hard for people even experiencing it to pick up that that's what's actually going on. So I think we've been working hard on, you know, in the community to build greater awareness of this. And I think things like the criminalisation of coercive control last year was a really significant step in New South Wales. Strong correlation between coercive control and domestic homicide. Yeah. Hence it's criminalised. Yeah. yeah. That's... Okay, uh, how do we how do we walk? If we start to notice some things, either in the relationship we're in, or in a relationship someone else is in, that look like coercive control, how do we how do we walk in that space? How do we navigate that space? Yeah, um, calling it out. <laughs> so if you are kind of noticing that, and you might notice this in a friend's relationship and I also want to say that this is something that often starts in a dating relationship mm. and, and goes on throughout the course of the relationship. Um, so you might get a bit of a sense that your friend is um, you know, a little bit always on tenorhooks around their partner, um, always having to check in with them, uh, you know, seems becoming more isolated, not really quite themselves the way they once were. Um, you know, if you're noticing that sort of stuff, or you've heard what the partner has said, you heard that he's always um, doing this checking in thing, or you've heard him say things like that are really put downs of her, or expressing that, oh, well, she's probably sleeping around and I really can't trust her. You know, if you're hearing that kind of stuff, I would definitely speak to, first of all, the woman, because we know it's much more likely she's the one that's going to be the victim, and check in on her and what is she noticing about her relationship um, and how can we help her be safe. But also for guys, I think if you hear that kind of thing coming from another guy, it's important to call that out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and don't think that it's going to get better somehow if you just hang in there. Yeah. Yeah, because it probably won't. It's, it probably won't. It's the beginning of something that'll probably yeah. be worse, not better. Yeah, and I think she's just on that. It's often, you know, early in a relationship, um, there might be some aspects of this sort of controlling behaviour that might seem 
but kind of benign. Like it might be, oh, that just how he shows how much he loves me and, you know, oh, you know, he's a bit jealous but that's because, you know, we're such a special couple, that kind of thing. And so it can be really, you can minimise it. You can kind of think, well, the relationship itself overall is really good or I'm really invested in it. And so you might not notice those red flags, but those red flags are not going to go away. Uh, if someone's in a relationship uh, now or in the future um, where they recognise that it's domestic abuse, that's an incredibly horrible situation to be in. Can you just comment on some of the ways, and, and it's not as simple as just making a choice about what to do. Can you just comment on some of the complexity of that and, and advice for people who might find themselves in that sort of place? Yeah, absolutely. So it can be really confusing if you start to notice that this maybe is the situation you're in and you might be feeling really unsafe and really not knowing what to do. So I would encourage you if you are in that situation, even just starting to notice some things of concern, that you reach out to someone you can trust um, and talk to them about what it is you're noticing and what you're experiencing. Um, Sometimes that might be a friend or a family member, but sometimes they actually won't see it and maybe that's because sometimes the perpetrators actually charm them mm. and they think, oh, there's nothing wrong here or mm. this is just normal. Um, so it might be you actually need to speak to someone like someone on the ministry team or um, to a professional counsellor or someone like that as well. So um, for those who are married, if this is something that is happening in the relationship, it's also important to say that... Um, the survivor or the victim survivor is not the one that's going to make this stop because only the perpetrator can stop this behaviour. Uh, and often people will sort of say, well, she has to leave, um, why does she stay? A whole lot of things that are kind of laying it lays of blame and guilt on the survivor and not actually addressing the perpetrator's behaviour. So it's important if you are seeking advice and help that you are being given choices to think about what are the pathways here and what are my options and what do I want to do and to really be able to notice what you are currently doing to keep yourself and if you have kids safe and then to consider options to build on that. All right, so being empowered to make a decision, not just being told what to do. Yeah. Um, and it would be right to say that if you're feeling unsafe or in danger, then you should call the police. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's often a good place to start. Yeah, great. Uh, all right, well, let, let's think then about the perpetrator. What, what should I do if I become aware that my behaviour is abusive and especially if I become aware I've developed patterns of abusive behaviour? Yeah, so first of all, if, um, if you do start to notice that, um, that's a really important thing. And, you know, um, be honest with yourself about that. Um, and I think the first thing to say is you need to stop that behaviour um, and that you have actually got the capacity to stop. I mean, I think, again, we often think that those who are being abusive there's something, you know, maybe it was their childhood, maybe it's other stresses that they don't actually have control over the behaviour, but they do. Mm. Um, so if you are noticing that, again, reach out to somebody that you can trust to share that with. Be honest. Don't let shame block you from doing something to change yourself and your behaviour because I'm sure most people want to have healthy, respectful relationships. Um, and that, you know, that's a pretty brave step and can be pretty hard. Yeah. Try to find someone who, again, is going to be honest with you and not minimise your behaviour and simply say, oh, everybody has relationship problems, so it's not that big a deal. 
Um, again, it might be here someone on the ministry team, it might be a professional counsellor, it might be like calling men's line and talking to them, um, it might be contacting Anglican counselling. We have in Parramatta specialised men's behaviour change counsellors who will work with you one-on-one um, and can also recommend group programs if they think that would be helpful for you. So stop, seek help, do something about it. Great. Thanks, Linda. Thank you so much. I just have two more quick questions for you. First of all, uh, as a diocese, Sydney has done some things in this space to help develop resources. Can you just share briefly with us some of those resources? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, our diocese has been really trying to take this issue increasingly seriously and to equip our churches to be able to respond and to support people who are experiencing abuse. So 2018, our synod passed the domestic abuse policy, so that covers all our churches. Um, I think one of the things that's really important in that is that it makes it very clear that Scripture does not justify abuse. And anybody who is using Scripture to try to justify their abusive behaviour, that's not okay. Um, so that's one of the really important things it does. It also provides a good practice guidelines for people in ministry to kind of help them step through how they might respond and support somebody. So we have the policy. We also have um, an online training course that was originally developed for ministers, but anyone can now access it. It's on the Safe Ministry Training website. It's called KNOW, No Domestic Abuse. So get to know more about it as well as saying no to it. It's about two or three hours worth of course material there that if you want to know a bit more about this, they can access. Um, Anglican has also worked with Safe Ministry to develop posters and other written materials and I have seen some of those posters here um, around your church. Um, we also have, we worked, partnered with YouthWorks to develop the Youth Primary Prevention Program before it starts, which I know you're about to do here with some of your youth. Um, so that's about healthy, respectful relationships. Um, and we have just also launched a book, um, Renew, an Australian Guide for Christian Women Survivors of Domestic Abuse. Yeah, we're going to grab some of these and have them available at church if people would like one or you can um, get on the Anglican. If you type Renew Anglican, you'll be able to find out where you can purchase that yourself. All right, Linda, uh, we've covered some pretty dark sort of territory and, and I guess your work is pretty dark. Uh, you hear some horrific stories. So tell us and, and let, give us some hope. How do you preach the gospel to yourself in your work? Yeah, um, God is just a God of goodness and grace and mercy. Um, he's extended his mercy and grace to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he comes to set captives free. Yeah. He's setting me free from sin and he wants to set people free from the oppression of sin as well. So um, for me, it's like preaching that to myself, but also really holding on to the reality that he is a God of justice um, and mercy and compassion. So he sees those who are suffering abuse. He does know what is happening. Because sometimes when you're suffering abuse, you might think nobody understands this. God sees you and knows what is happening. And he wants survivors to find healing and safety. And I really put a lot of trust in the reality that he will return, Jesus will return, and there will be judgment and real justice will come about. Uh, Because, you know, in this life, um, I think especially uh, for survivors of abuse, they often find that the justice system doesn't really recognise the issues or deal very well with them. 
Um, and yeah, we can look to God and put our hope and trust in him and his ultimate justice. So again, it's back to what Peter says, put your hope in God, look to him, he's the one who's done something about sin, will do something finally about sin and has provided forgiveness and healing for those of us who are affected by sin, which is all of us. Yeah. Great. Can I raise one other issue that I just think is probably pertinent to this group in particular? So we're talking a lot about those who are experiencing um, abuse in relationships, but we also know that that family violence, so you might be um, a young person who has grown up um, in a family where domestic abuse has been happening, and I just want to say to you that you are also a victim survivor in your own right and that you too are worthy of safety and hope and healing. And so if that is your circumstance and you need to talk about that, I just really encourage you to reach out to your youth minister or others on the pastoral care team here too. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Linda. Would you thank Linda? Just to finish this up, a reminder that Linda will be running that seminar on the 30th of March uh, and that will equip you more in some of these areas. Obviously, there's a whole range of things that Linda will be able to go into in more detail there than what she can uh, in this moment tonight. But I want to remind you that humble submission is the posture of each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. Humble submission to God first and foremost and then humble submission to each other. Humble submission isn't being submitted to humiliation. But rather, as verse 8 of 1 Peter 3 says, which we'll look at more next week, all of you, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. As we do that, the glory of Jesus is revealed, relationships are healthy and marriages are healthy. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you that you have shown us love. Strengthen us to love like you love. Father, tonight we particularly pray for any who are in a situation where they are a victim of domestic abuse. Father, we pray that you be with them in that confusing space and you give them people who they can talk to and who can help them work out what to do next. And Father, we pray if there are any here who have patterns of abuse in our lives, we pray that by your spirit and in your mercy you will point them out and enable us to come to a place of repentance and get the help that we need, that all of our relationships might be pure, might be honourable to you, might be healthy to others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatt's.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.